So last week we, we talked about Jesus inviting Jesus to a wedding in John chapter 2. Jesus goes to a wedding in Cana, um, and he turns the water into wine. And it is the first time that we have a moment in the Gospel of John where Jesus, where there is a, this talk about a sign, that Jesus um, manifests a sign. And we're going to get a second one in chapter 2. If you remember, uh, a, a lot of the, the, the Gospel of John revolves around feasts. Um, both the feasts of the, the scriptures, so Passover and booths and weeks and, and, and all of those things, but also wedding feasts and funeral feasts. And, and there's, there's so many different things that are happening. And Jesus is always at these feasts. And in chapter 2, John chapter 2 and verse 13, we're going to pick up the narrative of Jesus. Now, I want to—I I call it a narrative, but I want you to understand that the Gospel of John is not in chronological order. It is—it is arranged to make an argument that Jesus is the Son of God. The purpose of the book is to, is to bring us through um, a, a process, through a thought process, through a faith process, to understand who Jesus is. So this is not a chronological order, and we will discover that often. Events that may have occurred even on the same day are chapters apart. Um, and so so don't read this as this is a chronology. And people get in all kinds of trouble when they try to take John and make it fit with Matthew, Mark, and Luke because at times stories are occurring in completely different places. Um, for example, example, in the Gospel of John, on his Jesus supposedly feeds the 5,000. In the Gospel of John, he feeds the 5,000 on his way to Passover. And you read that, you go, wait, we never read that. That doesn't happen anywhere else in the other Gospels. Um, and so John is telling a story about Jesus feeding the 5,000, but he's actually giving us the historical context for it, but then telling it out of order. So, so we know when it happened, but it's just not when it is in the Gospel. So, so there's stuff like that that goes on. So we've, we've, we've had a wedding feast. I mentioned uh, the end of chapter 1. Uh, probably occurs as the disciples are on their way to... Um, this is the podium I really love. This, is, this one just keeps doing that. Um, this one, I swear, I'm going to throw it in the trash. Uh, so uh, don't worry about getting another one. Just leave it alone. Leave it alone. Don't worry about it. It's fine. It'll stay there. It'll be more distracting to, to swap. Um, but uh, I'm just going to leave it on the ground. Uh, but the, the Jesus is... Uh, Jesus is um, in the, in the end of chapter 1, Jesus is probably, he and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem for the Feast of Yom Kippur, uh, the Day of Atonement, which is why in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God, because Yom Kippur is the day when the Lamb that bears the sins of Israel is sacrificed, right? the Day of Atonement. Um, and so John says, Behold the Lamb of God, Jesus uh, begins... Uh, his ministry there. Then he has this wedding feast in Cana, which is in Galilee, about 40 miles north of Jerusalem. And then in chapter 2 and verse 13, he is headed back to Jerusalem. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Now, right before we get into that, that, that phrase gives us a clue as to who John is writing for. Who is John writing for if he has to describe the Passover as a Jewish feast? Writing for Gentiles, people that don't know that this is what goes on. And, and so they're like, oh, yeah, that's the Jewish feast. Now, the reason he probably does that is it's possible that the word Pasha, um, it, it could have been used to describe other feasts at the time 
by the Gentiles. The Gentiles kind of took this word and they used it. And you say, how does that happen? Well, just every, if you go to the south, what do you use to wipe your nose in the south? A Kleenex, right? A Kleenex. Um, what is a bubbly, sugary beverage in Minnesota? Hop, right? Um, you know, we, and, and now if you go in certain parts of the south, a bubbly beverage, they will ask you a question. You go to the restaurant and the, and the, and the waitress says to you, what kind of Coke do you want? Uh, you want an orange Coke? No, that sounds disgusting. But what they mean, what they mean is that's their word for soda. So, so uh, words move, right? Language teaches us that that when you you study linguistics, you find that words are fluid; they move. And so, it's possible that this word Pasha um, had been adopted by the Greek speakers um, to refer to just feasts that kind of reminded them of the Jewish Passover. And so. John, when he's describing this to these second and third generation Christians who are mostly Gentiles, he makes sure he understands the Passover of the Jews. So the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Um, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Um, now, there's no way in English for you to get the grammar, the way that this is structured, uh, but basically the word, um, the word selling... And the word sitting, those are the same kind of verb. And, and the, John writes kind of a loop. All right, So they're selling and they're sitting. And he's just kind of speaking of everything that's going on. And Jesus, making a whip of cords in verse 15, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers. And he overturned their tables. And my favorite part of this moment. Um, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, the reason that's my favorite, by the way, Jesus, so Jesus makes this, he sees these, these people and they're selling uh, oxen and they're selling sheep and they're selling pigeons and they're changing money. I'm going to talk about what they were doing. But Jesus gets upset. He grabs this, he grabs a bunch of rope, he ties it together, he makes a whip out of it, and he starts whipping the animals and the people, driving them out of the temple courtyard. Now, don't think they're actually in the temple, like in a building. Um, the, temple, the temple complex in Jerusalem at the time was the largest paved outdoor surface in the world. All right, this thing is huge. Uh, to give you a sense of how big the temple courtyard is, the open space of the temple it was about three times the size of the Mall of New Hampshire. All right, that's how big it was. It was a large place. You could get a hundred thousand people into this uh, into this expo- uh, this area. And during pilgrimage feasts like Passover, as many as a million people would come to Jerusalem for this event. And so Jesus is in kind of a crowd. So naturally, when you find yourself in a crowd and you encounter people selling oxen and sheep, you make a whip and you drive them. That must have been great. People must have really enjoyed the sudden rodeo in the middle of their uh, observance. But this great moment, the, for me, the moment is Jesus got this whip and he's whipping them. He's overturning tables and he's, and, he's, and he's ripping up coin bags and he's doing all this stuff. And then he comes to all these guys selling pigeons. And I just have this image of the pigeons, pigeon sellers. And Jesus goes, why don't you take your birds and go? And the pigeon, you know... Um, because, I mean, you can't, um, for one thing, you can't whip birds. I mean, that's not going to work. But, but uh, so he drives them all out. Now, by the way, the pigeon sellers are the only people that are supposed to be there. See, the Levitical law was 
said that if you had to travel from a distance to come to Jerusalem, or if you were too poor, if you had to travel a distance, what you could do is you could convert your offering to money, bring it to Jerusalem, and then you could buy pigeons, and you could offer them as a sacrifice. Now, if you, if you could, you were supposed to bring your lamb. You were supposed to bring a sheep. You were supposed to get one out of your flock and bring it with you. But Jew, the Jews had spread throughout the Roman world. They represented a, a significant minority of the Roman population. Somewhere between 10 and 20% of the population of the Roman Empire was Jewish. Now, that, that blows people's minds when they think about that. But it, they were a huge minority. Um, they were actually the power behind Julius Caesar when he took power in 44 B.C. Um, the, the Senate was afraid of the Jews of Rome because he had passed a bunch of laws to protect them. They were a relatively powerful, significant group in the Roman Empire. And, and so they were spread throughout the empire. They lived as far away as Spain and as far away as Persia. And so when they were going to come for the pil- pilgrimage, the, pilgrimage, um, the regal, um, when they were coming for pilgrimage to Jerusalem, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to bring a sheep all the way from Persia. So they would sell the sheep, they would get some money, and they would bring it in, and then they would buy uh, doves, birds. That was what you were supposed to buy, and you would sacrifice those. Um, the issue is that, uh, that what was happening was that Passover had become a tourist event. I mentioned how huge the platform was. That was because Herod the Great wanted to be something. Um, by the way, he gave himself that name. So no ego there at all. You shall call me Herod the Great. And, and he, now he did substantial stuff. I mean, he built a lot of stuff, but he built this Jerusalem a courtyard. It actually took almost 50 years to build it. About the time it was done, it got burned down. Um, but the, uh, he, he built this enormous thing, and the whole reason was he wanted everybody to come and see the spectacle of the Jerusalem temple. And so in order for that to work, well, you invite tourists to come. They want to be part of the event, right? They want to participate in it. You don't want to just sit there and watch. You want to be a part of it. So, hey, you can buy a lamb or an oxen, and you can sacrifice this. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. You can just go ahead and sacrifice this oxen. Be a part of the thing. Do Passover. It's kind of like Coachella, right? So it was like everybody was like, oh, did you go to Passover? Oh, Passover was off the hook. Did you hear those trumpet players? They were amazing. And this is literally what was happening. So when Jesus shows up, he decides he's going to fix the problem. And so he makes a whip and he drives out the oxen and he drives out the sheep and he drives out the the people that are selling the oxen and selling the sheep because worship is not entertainment. And worship is not a spectacle for your pleasure. Jesus says, my house is not a house of trade. My house is not a place where you come to be a part of, to be a, a part of the spectacle, to see, to, to be able to brag about it. To, you know, I mean, obviously they didn't have Instagram, you know, but you get, you know, teenagers are teenagers. So I just imagine them circulating scrolls of drawings of themselves at Jerusalem, you know, pictures of the meal that they ate and it's papyrus to their friends. Um, you know, I don't know what that's, that, it's not Instagram, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's not snappy either, it's long-term cha- gram. Anyway, um, so, so, but this is, this is what happened, Jesus is going to have none of it. Worship had become a tourist event. 
So Jesus drives them out. And his disciples, immediately in verse 17, the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for my house will consume me. They say, hey, this is a messianic sign. They, they remember in the, in the Old Testament, they remember the Hebrew Scriptures, zeal for my house will consume me. This is a sign. They're like, man, this is a sign. Jesus is the Messiah. We find out later, down at the bottom, you're going to find out that many people believed in Jesus because of this. So, like, this is a sign. So, naturally, in verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us by doing these things? So, Jesus, what's the point of all this? Now, his disciples understand this as Jesus as Messiah, purifying the temple of his father. But the Jews, the ones who are supposed to understand, the religious leaders, the authority, the ones who are running the show, who are profiting off of the spectacle, completely miss the point. So, Jesus, what sign are you going to show us? Now, I don't know how much of more of a sign he really... I mean, this is a show. This is a... Spe- I mean, this is, this is nuts what he's just done. He's just cleared the courtyard. What sign are you going to show us? And Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. Now, hold up, Jesus. Just a second. We're more than willing to let you be this radical teacher. We're more than willing to let you, you know, take the, the disciples of John and, and start to do your thing. We're more than willing to let you even drive the... It was good for business because now we can up the prices of the cattle and, and all of those things. It's, it's fine, but what do you mean destroy this temple and in three days I will rise, raise it up? The Jews then said in verse 20... It has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? This, by the way, was the most expensive building built outside of Rome. In the entire Roman world. Had the list of the seven wonders of the world been put together during this time, the Temple of Jerusalem would have been on the list. Now, if you ever go to Jerusalem, you ever have an opportunity... Uh, to go to the Haram Sharif, the the, uh, the the temple platform, the temple mound, you need to realize that that is not a natural occurring uh, um, topography. The entire thing is supported by arches and retaining walls and aqueducts, and there's a whole network of tunnels underneath that were built 2,000 years ago, and many of them still operate. Where And the point was to be able to move all the animals. It was like Disneyland. Have you guys ever seen underground of disneyland have you ever wondered how many of you have been to disneyland right have you ever wondered where all those cartoon figures appear from like suddenly they're there you know when we were there ariel was obsessed with meeting ariel um go figure Uh, and and we had a hard time getting to ariel we kept we kept missing her um and she was teleporting or something i don't know what the deal was well, you find out that what happens, now we went in the fall, and I actually got a chance to talk with one of the managers while we were standing in line for something, I think for Jasmine and, uh, and um, uh, Aladdin. And, um, and we were talking to her, and, and she said, oh, yeah, there's, there's tunnels. We move everybody through tunnels. That's why you never see, at Disneyland, you never see somebody pushing a trash cart, right? They go down into the tunnel. It's all transported that way. All the landscaping guys move. All the maintenance stuff is all done in tunnels. It's all underneath, so you don't see it, right? You don't see it. And Jerusalem, the Jerusalem temple was very much like that. It was a 
enormous, enormous, enormous complex. It had cost the equivalent of hundreds of billions. I mean, we're talking Jerry Jones kind of money being spent on this thing. Um, it was enormous. They said, we've been building this for 46 years. And you're going to raise it back up in three days. Now, John knows what he's talking about when he writes the gospel. I don't think John understood what Jesus was talking about when he said this. It's only after Jesus' resurrection that John realizes Jesus is talking about uh, his resurrection. Uh, but in verse 21, he was speaking, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he, that he had said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, so this seems to be the same moment. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, this is one of the most interesting theologically charged statements in, in the whole Gospel of John. The statement is that Jesus, they believed Jesus' name, right? They believed in his name, but Jesus, now the word we get in English, entrusted himself, is actually the same verb, um, pisteo, to believe. That Jesus was not willing to um their belief. He knew that it wasn't time yet for them um, to really, truly believe. They were believing, but they didn't know what they were believing yet. They, they, were, they were accepting Jesus, but they didn't understand who Jesus really was. And this is fascinating to me that John, who is one of the disciples, he says, you know, we were believing Jesus, but we didn't know who we were believing in yet. We weren't fully aware of what was going to happen, where we were going, what was what was going on in this day. So I want to just kind of wrap all of this into kind of a uh, big timey wimey wibbly wobbly thing. Um, when Jesus is at the Passover and he, he drives out the, the money changers and deals with the worship as tourism, and he answers this, the request for a sign in this really extraordinary, weird way. When Jesus is doing this, when we step back, we have to ask ourselves, um, why is John telling us this story? Why is John telling us this story the way he's telling it? What's connecting everything that's going on here? What is John trying to get at? And there's a couple of things that I want to I kind of give you kind of application ideas, and maybe some of them will kick to you, and some of them won't. And others may work. And The first thing goes back to this idea of worship as a tourist attraction. We need to understand that the vast majority of people, just in general are going to be more in awe of spectacle than they are of the humbling that is required of worship. Spectacle sells. 
spectacle selves. Um, I'm listening. It was listening to a, a, a an audio lecture on the Beatles, um, and talking about filling stadiums when the Beatles were doing Shea Stadium and Candlestick and all that stuff in 1965. And the the lecturer said, he said there were, at this time there were only three acts that filled stadiums: sports teams, the Beatles, and evangelists. And I went, what? But he was tr- right. Spectacle sells. Thousands upon thousands of people would go to see Billy, Billy Graham preach. And, and it was so impressive. Tens of thousands, 20,000, 30,000 people at this event. But the reality is, if those people had been sincere in their belief, those numbers of people, the world would have been different. How do we reconcile hundreds of thousands of people going to evangelists and hearing this or hundreds of thousands of people going to the Jesus People concerts? The big Christianity was a big seller in the, with the hippies for a while there at the late 60s, and um, mostly because, you know, Jesus was depicted as a hippie, so it was good. Um, but, but you had this, and you had these big, huge, amazing concerts and all this stuff in the same time that the 1960s were going on. When everybody was tuning in all right, tuning out and tuning in and dropping out. And, and uh, we were acquiring all of our wonderful and extraordinary drug problems that still afflict our country 60 years later. When sex, drugs, and rock and roll was the credo, how could we possibly say that that spectacle of Christianity had the impact it supposedly had when the, the nation itself was falling apart? I grew up in the 1980s. I grew up as a part of the moral majority. Uh, Jerry Falwell, Oral Roberts, uh, Pat Robertson. You know, Christians are going to change the world. At one point, Pat Robertson, a Christian minister, ran for president. We had Ronald Reagan. The world was going to work out for us. Now, anyone under the age of 30, you have no idea what I'm talking about. All right? But at the late 70s, early 80s, the Christian right, the religious right, was going to fix everything that was wrong with the world. It didn't work. Why? The spectacle sells. Faith changes people. You can go to the spectacle of Christianity and look at the hoopla and all of the big bang and all of the, all of the whiz bang and all that stuff that goes on, but it won't change you. You can weep and you can cry and you can moan and you can speak in tongues and lay on the floor and you can do all of those things, but if there's not true faith, it means nothing. Everybody in my and their brother wants a new revival. We, we need a revival. We need hundreds of thousands of people falling down, slain in the Holy Spirit. No, we don't. We just need the Christians who are in our in the churches now serious about their faith in Christ. Serious enough to let it change their lives. To let it change their politics. To let it change their perspectives. To let it change their voice. Well, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to offend anybody. I got news for you. You are offensive by nature. Don't be intentionally annoying. 
Vegans have that. No insult to vegans. I know, I know, I know. How do you know when somebody's a vegan? They'll let you know. Um, what do you call a guy that hangs out with musicians? A drummer. Anyway. Um, <laughs> all right, all right. Now I've upset both sides of the camp so I can keep moving. All right. Um, but the, the reality of it is, the truth of it is, Jesus stripped away the spectacle, showed true the people true faith. They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know what to do with it. If I can give you one beautifully confusing moment in your life, the moment when you are confronted with the Jesus of the scriptures and you just don't know what to do with it. And then you have a choice. Make him fit what you want him to be. Trust him as he is. Jews in the temple, they were not going to trust him. The people that were even following still had a long road to go before they'd come and be with him. Faith is a journey. It's a path. Some of us have these most extraordinary moments where Jesus just, bam, changes our lives, and it's extraordinary. My dad, when my dad became a Christian in 1971, 1970, yeah, 1971, Palm Sunday, 1971, my dad was a, a drug-toting communist. And I am not making that up. He was dating a my wife. My mom was a an adventure too. But he was he was a, a he was when he got saved. He was he was on his way to an overdose and just couldn't get a hold of some PCP. That was what he was looking for and couldn't get a hold of it. He and his buddy John were on a drug binge. Jesus got a hold of him. My dad put the drugs down, the cigarettes down, the beer down. He never touched them again. Never touched it. He, and, and, you know, last week we talked about this, but, you know, my dad doesn't drink alcohol. He doesn't smoke cigarettes. He doesn't go to movies. He doesn't play card games. He doesn't do anything that, that he did as that person because once Jesus got a hold of him, he was going to change. And he's still got weird things about him. His favorite band is Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. I don't really, I don't really get that. I mean, but anyway. Um, some of us have those extraordinary changes. For some of us, it's just a path. It's just a journey. It's just a walk. And we keep meeting Jesus at places where we get uncomfortable with him and we choose. Do we choose to believe or do we choose our path? Do we choose to see the signs knowing we may not understand where they're taking us or do we just ignorantly say, ignore the signs like the Jews? You don't mean a word of prayer. Father, we ask that as, as believers, as a church, as a body, we will be continually be drawn into the mystery and the challenge of the supernatural presence that is you in our lives. Help us to be aware of the confrontations we have with ourselves and our desires and our wills as you manifest yourself. And as we learn to believe, 
as we learn to walk, as we learn to grow, as we learn to be changed by your Spirit, as we strive to change the world one relationship at a time, one life at a time, one choice at a time, may we always see you. Father, help us to strip away the spectacle favor of the substance, to to strip away the surface in favor of the, the truth, and to be growing in our faith in you. We pray all of this, Jesus, in your precious and holy name.